At that time, I didn't have a college degree. I was working in the finance uh, with the finance team, uh, you know, reporting to the CFO, and I didn't technically have any credentials from that perspective. But what I did know that they didn't. So you can have the best MBA in the world, but if you've never run a business, you're missing a part of the equation. From Politico, this is Women Rule, where we bring you real talk with women bosses. I'm Anna Palmer senior Washington correspondent and co-author of the Politico Playbook. That's Kimberly Grant, the CEO of the Think Food Group, the company behind the many celebrated restaurants of Jose Andres. If that name sounds familiar, it's for good reason. In addition to being one of the most famous celebrity chefs in America, Jose Andres has been an outspoken critic of Donald Trump's immigration policies, which put Kimberly in the middle of a major public spat. What was it like to go through that? It was interesting. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of people assume they know what makes a restaurant successful, but it's more complicated than you may realize. We talked about that, the things that never occur to you when you're eating, but that somebody behind the scenes like Kimberly spends a lot of time thinking about. It's a lot harder than everyone thinks it is. It's very operationally intense, long hours. And, you know, every day, Jose says this the best way, every day has to be a good day. You have to be happy. And even though you may have other things going on in your life, other things going on in your business, you know, you're there to uplift and bring people to a better place than when they entered the restaurant to begin with. People underestimate the emotional strength that that takes. And now, here's my conversation with Kimberly Grant. Kimberly, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. So Jose Andres is very well known, certainly here in D.C., but for people who maybe aren't as familiar or aren't from this area, can you tell us a little bit about him and Think Food Group? Sure. Well, um, you're here in our offices at 717 D Street, which is in the Penn Quarter, And this is where the company started. So 26 years ago, the first Haleo was on the corner of 7th and E, and that's what started it all. It's a pretty famously difficult industry, right? People start restaurants all the time (laughs) with no real understanding of finances, of what goes into it, human resources, all of those things. You yourself have been in the restaurant business for pretty much your whole career. How do you find it different than maybe what people expect it to be? Wow, uh, that's a great question. So I think it's a lot harder than everyone thinks it is. Um, it's, you know, it's an industry, it's very operationally intense, long hours. And, you know, every day, Jose says this the best way, every day has to be a good day. You have to be happy. And even though you may have other things going on in your life, other things going on in your business, you know, you're there to uplift and bring people to a better place than when they entered the restaurant to begin with. So I think people underestimate the emotional um, strength that that takes to do that day in, day out. I imagine, too, that this is a job where people looking from the outside, particularly in today's society of celebrity food chefs and cooking shows, see kind of the glamour side of it. Um, but peel back the curtain for us. What what are the things that people don't see? I mean, HR, what, what are you dealing with? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that uh, perhaps the part that people miss is just how long it takes to lift a restaurant up. You know, sometimes we'll be working on projects anywhere from three to five years before 
they'll actually open and be serving guests. And I think a lot of people, they see when the construction begins and they know that nine to 12 months that there's going to be a great new restaurant in their neighborhood or the hotel is going to be opening soon or what have you. But a lot of the planning started three to five years before that. And, you know, kind of halfway between there and when the construction begins is when you start looking for the people. Like right now, we have projects that we're opening in perhaps Tokyo, Hong Kong, uh, Chicago. Well, to find the right people and the right team to move to those cities, it takes time. Mm -hmm. And so I think just the amount of preparation that goes into really standing a restaurant up. You were the CEO here. Is there a typical day in the life? No, <laughs> for, for sure. I think it all starts with is Jose in town or is he not in town? So, you know, typically uh, when Jose is here in the office, everything really revolves and orbits around his day and really uh, decisions that need to be made and planning and uh, the creative elements that need to, to brainstorming that needs to happen with him and the team. When he's not here is when really the blocking and tackling happens. So all what he would call the boring stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of typical, you know, the meetings and or um, reviews of results or, you know, getting ready for, you know, upcoming projects and things like that. You know, my days are spent kind of equally divided between the future, you know, mm -hmm. new business development and kind of the pipeline down the road. And then also the day in, day out running the restaurants. I'm curious, you joined Jose in 2014. Back then, he certainly wasn't quite as public as a figure as he is now. And he certainly was not as political. I remember when I first <laughs> moved here, even before that, I, I knew his restaurants, but it, he wasn't a major figure in politics. How has your job changed or has it as he's become more of a public and political figure? I think Jose was always very outspoken and um, had his points of view from the beginning. I mean, I've known Jose for over a decade, long before I joined. And, you know, he was always outspoken. I think the difference is, is that he has a platform. And I think the nature of communication is so much different now, you know, between social media. And obviously, he is a millennial at heart. You know, he adopts it so quickly. Um, I, I do think that we we do have the complexity here of not only managing restaurant brands, but his personal brand. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they align, sometimes they don't align. And our job is to kind of weave them together um, where one plus one equals three. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think um, it adds a bit of complexity, but it also allows us to really have a way to kind of fulfill the mission of the company, which is changing the world through the power of food. If Jose didn't have those platforms and he wasn't able to be outspoken and a thought leader in topics beyond being a chef, life would be a lot less interesting. <laughs> well, let's take a step back. Tell us a little bit about where you grew up. I grew up uh, as a small town farm kid in Pennsylvania. So I was from the, the western side of the state near Erie, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. I went to uh, the same school from kindergarten all the way through graduating high school, as did every friend that I grew up with. And it was about a town of about three thousand people. And from what I've read, it sounds like you didn't always know you wanted to be in the restaurant or the food business. No, it, it really happened by accident. I came to be in the restaurant industry out of a love for volleyball, believe it or not. I played volleyball very competitively in high school and a little bit in college. And when I left college, I played a little bit of the, I guess you call it semi-professional, where you play for money on tournaments up and down the East Coast, Ocean City, Rehoboth Beach, Virginia Beach. And the only job you could really do if you're playing volleyball during the day was to wake 
be a waitress at night. Mm -hmm. I worked in the restaurants at night as a result of that. And I happened to find, you know, something that I really loved. Talk to me about that a little bit, because I think one of the things that we've seen on this podcast and just when you kind of cover women who are successful in business, oftentimes they were competitive athletes. They played sports. How do you think that affected or does it affect your approach to business? It absolutely affects everything I do. Um, I think that, you know, for me, a lot of times you get a lot of questions about um, how you became the person you became. And sports were integral to that. This is back in the days where you played three sports. I was a volleyball, basketball and ran track. Now a kid could never remotely consider that with the way the demands are. But each of those um, sports gave me a different type of experience, you know. So in volleyball, for example, I was the captain of the team. I was one of the best players on the team. And so that offered a different element of experience. Whereas in basketball, I was more of a contributor. I was the point guard. I was kind of like the organizer. Um, I was co-captain, but I wasn't necessarily the best player on the team. Uh, and track was really something that I did to keep in shape for the other two sports. Mm-hmm. So each sport kind of shaped me a little bit. But I think what shaped me the most were the coaches. Mm-hmm. Coaches at any level who really are passionate about it change people's lives. They change children's lives. They change adults' lives. And I had amazing coaches that changed my life. Hmm. What was one of the things you learned from them? That I could do anything. Really. I mean, I... You know, all the women were treated as though we could do anything, you know, and there was no barriers to doing anything we ever dreamed of. So you eventually work your way up to being COO of Ruby Tuesday. Yes. The restaurant chain. When you started out, was that your goal to work up to the C-suite? No, definitely not. Again, I started out as a as a, a waitress. And then within a couple of years, it did what a lot of restaurant people do is we move up through the ranks. Mm-hmm. So I became a manager. But I very quickly, I was, I think, at the time, 22 or 23 years old, had the opportunity to invest in my own restaurant, my first restaurant. So at that time, uh, the brands like Outback and Ruby Tuesdays and some of the others offered what they called partnering programs. So you could invest money into a restaurant. You had to be one of the better operators to be able to do that. So I scraped together $10,000 and invested in one of the restaurants, actually right here locally in in the DC area. Oh, interesting. Yeah, exactly. So I I did that and uh, was really successful at running a single restaurant, made a lot of money for me. I was, you know, a young, young, person. So it was a lot at that time. At the time, Ruby Tuesdays was spinning off to become its own public company. And I had an opportunity to go be a part of the finance team as a result of how well I was doing running a single restaurant uh, when it moved to uh, back to Knoxville, Tennessee in, in the late 90s. Talk to, talk to us a little bit about the being a business executive, that change from running an operation, owning that, you know, part of that operation to kind of working your way up. I mean, that's very different kind of having to go to the corporate environment versus dealing with management at, at the people who are waitress level and, and bartenders and, you know, food buying and things like that. No, absolutely. I, I think, you know, I went through a culture shock in the beginning. You know, I at that time, I didn't have a college degree. I was working in the finance uh, with the finance team, uh, you know, reporting to the CFO. And I didn't technically have any credentials from that perspective. But what I did know that they didn't, so you can have the best MBA in the world, but if you've never run a business, you're missing a part of the equation. So I was able to bring a lens of operating, having employees, dealing with the P&L, and being able to understand the real world. And so my experience, once I was able to get over the culture shock, was really where I was able to 
contribute something that others didn't know. And I was able to learn from them what I hadn't learned in a classic way. So at Ruby Tuesday, you were on the road, I read, three days a week all year long, <laughs> driving through small towns. What is it you're looking for when you're deciding if a certain restaurant is a good idea or not? Well, it was different then than it is now. So I guess let's start yeah. with that. Um, you know, at Ruby Tuesday, we would conduct real estate you know, evaluations or site trips, what we call site trips, once a month. And once a month, you would fly to five, six different cities and you would probably review 30, 40 sites. But we had a formula. We knew the dynamics and the demographics of what made a Ruby Tuesday work. When I joined, we had 157-ish restaurants. When I left, we had over 800. Wow. And I was probably a part of the last couple hundred as far as site trips and openings and things like at an executive level. But it was formulaic. We we knew what worked and we repeated it over and over and over again. Here it's 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 a little more challenging because there isn't a formula. There's obviously a passion with Jose of where we want to go and what we want to do. But it starts with first, is it a place where we want to be? Is it, you know, we try to focus on gateway cities that are, you know, relatively cosmopolitan, that have, you know, higher educated, higher income, food oriented consumers. And there's only so many of those cities in the U.S. to, to choose from. So it starts there. And then once we evaluate that that's a city we want to be in business, then it's about what's the neighborhood. You know, here in the Penn Quarter is a dining destination neighborhood. We look for those type of neighborhoods in each city. So we start with the, the gateway city, then we kind of narrow in on the neighborhood. And then what we want to do at that point is we want to look for, is this a place where we could cluster a couple of our different brands? Uh, you know, we have 17 concepts. So here in the Penn Quarter, we have five between Haleo, Zetina, Oyamel, Chino Chilcano, and Minibar. Um, but in Chicago, it may be, you know, three that are different brands that we have in our portfolio. So it starts with the city, then the neighborhood, and then can we, you know, cluster a handful of our businesses together? I think one of the things that a lot of businesses and women that we talk to on this podcast when they are in this executive level, and, and you kind of, you're going in pretty headfirst, have you ever had to pull back and say, oh, that, you know what, we made the wrong strategic decision. How do you know when it's that moment? Is there something kind of a piece of advice in your years of business here and just in kind of in this industry that is fickle, right? Things change. Audience palettes change. They need something new. How do you deal with that? I mean, everything is both art and science, right? So the science can get you so far. And then sometimes it even comes into selecting the site that, the science may not be there yet. The people may not be there that yet, but you know it's where you need to be. So I think we balance the art and the science. I think one of the great things about the partnership I have with Jose is that we come from completely different parts of the industry and we have different ways we contribute to the decision making. Mm -hmm. And so our art and our science is a little more developed because of that. It, and and we, we utilize that to our benefit. So there's times where I may believe it's a no brainer and he may have reservations and his reservations may not necessarily be grounded in a statistic or a, a fact, but more experience and intuition and, and vice versa. So we've obviously had some infamous and uh, um, more <laughs> famous pullouts, let's say, to, so to speak. <laughs> but it generally is grounded in evaluating both the art and the science part of it and then making the best decision for our company. I want to talk about burnout. This is an industry that 
hours are long. It's hard often to be female in it, um, whether you're a chef or different things. How did you, how do you guys handle burnout? How have you handled it within your own career? Well, I I think burnout means different things to different people. I, I can speak from my personal experience and how I manage that. I mean, you mentioned earlier, I've been traveling for 26 years, basically every week or every other week. And you get smart at travel. Any industry, people get smart at, at traveling. I think the most important thing is you got to take care of yourself. I had a, an early mentor, you know, the, the founder of Ruby Tuesday, Sandy Bell. And one of the best things he ever did for me is teach me how to take care of myself. And it starts with simple things like exercise, really caring about what you put in your body from a food and, and what have you. But more is the, the mind, you know, keeping your mind very, very healthy. And so what I do personally is, you know, lots of little things along, along the way, but I also commit every year to what I call wellness weeks. I always joke with people who have kids, you know, a vacation with kids is not a vacation. It's a trip, right? <laughs> right. And, and you don't really decompress when you're busy all the time and you go on, on a vacation with your family. It's important and it's, it's satisfying, but it doesn't do anything to recharge you. And so I commit to these weeks where I do that last, uh, I guess about a month ago, I was in the Dolomites in Italy hiking in the Alps. I cleared my brain. I felt healthy. I ate, you know, vegan vegetarian for the week and I feel great. You know, so that's, that's how I help, you know, with the burnout piece. The other part is with your team and with your people. Culturally, I think in the restaurant industry, we work so hard that you have to make it feel uplifting and exciting and very rewarding to do what we do. Otherwise, people quit and they leave. And so I think we spend a lot of time being grateful for what people do. You know, we're not always the best at it, you know, because we're always working hard and, and what have you. But we try to do our best to recognize efforts and, and accomplishments. In terms of thinking about kind of your own career, you were, you went from a really big kind of massive international chain to obviously a much more boutique concept with, you know, one one person really that it was behind all of it. How did you make that shift? Because I think that's something that a lot of the the women and the listeners to this podcast talk a lot about is like, how do you make that kind of gut choice to do something different, which is out of potentially your comfort zone? Well, it was very purposeful. What a lot of people don't know about about Ruby Tuesday and the founder, Sandy Bell, is that he was also, along with his, his family and his wife, the founder of Blackberry Farm. And Blackberry Farm is one of the most highly regarded Relais Chateau inns in the world, usually number one, number two, or number three in service at any given time. And at Ruby Tuesday, most of our events, annual meetings, celebrations were at Blackberry Farm over the years. So at a very young age, long before I appreciated what it meant or what it was, I was eating and dining on the best china with the best chefs, with the best vintners at Blackberry Farm. And not once a year, every couple times a month, you know, a lot. And so it it really shaped the way that I see the industry and the food. And there's there's a purpose for Ruby Tuesday in the in their competitive set. And there's a purpose for the, you know, wonderful chefs like Jose and in, in the industry that we're in now. During that time, I developed the love for it, but also I knew that I wanted to always be a part of a, a brand that stood for quality and being the best at what they did. You know, at that time, Ruby Tuesdays was one of the best in what they did and what we did. And when it came time to leave Ruby Tuesday, I knew I wanted to be a part of something that was founder led, that stood for quality 
and that I could be proud of. I think it's interesting because you you go from kind of obviously a, a big corporation to I mean Jose's got a very big platform and different and and operation, but a lot of people struggle with managing up. You have a very large personality. I've met him. I've interviewed him. Uh, he's, you know, he's got all the energy in the world uh, and a lot of opinions. But that has to be a huge part of what you do here, right? Is managing around everything being imprinted with his name on it. What have you found that, that's worked for you? I think the best advice I give on managing up is just fostering um, open communication. That's by far the best. It's easier now than ever before, you know, specific to mine and Jose's communication. You know, we can text message, we can phone call, we can meet in person. And, you know, I've kind of lived by my whole career when it comes to communication that there should never be any surprises, the whole idea of no surprises. And so I think if you foster that type of communication, it it helps tremendously, especially when you're managing across or up in an organization, no matter how big or small. So you alluded to this, but now we'll get to it. There was a famous restaurant that did not come into existence, mm-hmm. uh, which was the planned Jose Andres restaurant in the Trump Hotel, mm-hmm. which he pulled out of in response to the president's statements about immigrants. It was very big news. What was it like to go through that? It was interesting. <laughs> it's a very it, political answer. Yeah, no, it it was very it was very interesting. Listen, I think every challenge in business, even the toughest ones, you learn a lot from. And I think that it added to the, you know, life experiences and business experiences for both me and Jose, but also, you know, our investors, our board and our entire company. So it's it's a part of our story now. So you came out of it maybe stronger going into future partnerships or different ideas, would you, do you approach them differently? Do you make sure you have a, a better sense of, so that it doesn't repeat itself, some, a problem like that? Maybe it's very unique. No, I think it's easier said than done. I, I think that you can't control all the aspects of a business deal. And so I think looking back on not just that particular case, but other cases where I, I would say that maybe we, maybe we should have paused or, or thought or what have you. I still don't think it would change the decision at the time. I mean, you make decisions based on the best information available to you when you make it. And to kind of second guess it once you know more information is kind of unfair to yourself a little bit, right? But I don't think that we would have made any different decision, even knowing what we know. I mean, it's it's always great to know more, but at the time, it was an iconic building with an incredibly rich history, and it's in our city, and we wanted to be a part of it. So mm-hmm. it was as simple as that. You, you took my question right from me. What, what would you have done <laughs> something differently? But it doesn't sound like it. No, I mean, I think we go through this all the time. As a global company, uh, we look at some of the most amazing assets all over the world. And a lot of the most amazing assets are owned by very interesting, dynamic, wealthy people. Mm. And everyone has their own path to how they were able to become wealthy. And so you evaluate it just like you evaluate uh, the business risks and, and what have you. Women Rule is produced by Zach Stanton. Special thanks to Jenny Amont for her help with this recording. The show is made in partnership with our founding partners, Google and the Tory Burch Foundation. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to Women Rule on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us and leave a review. And please share our episodes on social media and follow me on Twitter and Instagram at A. Palmer DC. You can also join the Women Rule community by texting WOMEN to 66866. 